Hey everyone, it's Chris Hewitt here, just leaping in before you start listening to this spoiler special for Ben Wheatley's In the Earth. This was, as you may be able to tell, recorded last summer when the movie was about to come out in cinemas, but we then decided to delay it until it was available on DVD and Blu-ray and digital and all that good stuff, which it now is. So here it is, the spoiler special for Ben Wheatley's In the Earth. It's a cracking film. It's well worth your time if you haven't seen it. Although if you haven't seen it, you're almost certainly not listening to this, so ignore that bit. Uh, And if you're a fan of Ben Wheatley, you're going to love it, so give it a whirl. Anyway, I just wanted to pop on real quick to explain all the outdated references. Here we go. Do please enjoy. If you... Go down in the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. Oh, oh. If you go down in the woods today, Parnag Feg will eat your eyes or something. Look, it's a work in progress. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to our latest spoiler special podcast. This one is dedicated to the latest slice of Ben Wheatley folk horror madness, aka In the Earth. And joining me to dig deep and tickle the toes of this movie are two colleagues of such lethal cunning, Dan Jolin. Hello. I've got to confess, I thought this was In the Heights, spoiler podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to be talking about... Good morning, (laughs) oh Danny. Sorry for the tune. (laughs) I'm sure I'll I'll be fine. I'll be fine. In the Heights. In the Heights. There's no musical numbers in this one no this is the one where a bloke gets his toes cut off oh that one yeah i have seen this one that's okay Are you i'm good yeah no i'm fine i'm okay. ready now should we start again we'll start again okay uh <laughs> and also joining us is a man who likes in the earth and in the heights but hopefully he knows which podcast is which it is of course ben travis hello ben Hello. Yes, this has now made me really want to see a version of In the Earth, where the experimental noises that Hayley Squires is playing to the forest is actually the In the Heights soundtrack, just to see how the, the I don't know, the, the tree brain Parnag Feg responds to that. I think it would probably chill out quite a bit if it heard that instead of the kind of ominous, booming synths that are being played out. I think that could work nicely. It'd be a great mashup, actually. Someone should mash up the two films. You think that would that would soothe the savage beast? Not that Parnag Veg is particularly savage, I, I would I would venture, but yeah. Do you think that might, that might calm him down a little bit? It would either release better spores or different spores. Spores are being released either way, whether you like it or not. That's what happens. If I enjoy a movie, I always release spores everywhere. Dan does. Dan does, yeah, yes. It's, it's always advisable never to sit in front of Dan or <laughs> beside Dan or mm. behind Dan. Behind. And I, I try, if possible... To never be in the same room as Dan. So this pandemic, uh, which I haven't engineered, just so I don't have to be in the same room as Dan, by the way, in case that's what you were thinking. What? That's a crazy notion. Uh, This pandemic has been something of a godsend in that way, not in any other way. It's been terrible in all other ways. And obviously, um, okay. So anyway, welcome both. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks, Chris. Great. Excellent. Now let's hear from the Ben who really matters. Ben Well, it's lovely to be here, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. I feel like I have the the most insight in this film. uh, Good, Ben, because I have no insight. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course not. Of course, I've got insight coming out of my arse. I've got tons of spores of insight. But that's here first from a man who is almost entirely composed of insight. It is the film's writer and director, Ben Wheatley. I caught up with him recently on 
Squadcast or Assume, one of the two, and we had a good old natter about the movie, Parnag Feg, exactly what Ben was up to in this film and all sorts. Now, I'm going to explain the opening, because the opening is a little bit weird, but basically the last two times Ben appeared on the Empire podcast, he realised afterwards that <laughs> basically I had asked him the same questions two times in a row, and he had given me the same answer two times in a row. So that's what we were alluding to in this opening. But uh, after that, we get into In the Earth, and we get into it pretty damned deep. Here we go. Me talking to Ben Wheatley. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this In the Earth spoiler special by the film's writer and director, Mr. Ben Wheatley. How are you, sir? I'm very good. And how are you doing, Chris? You all right? I'm all right. I'm okay. Um, first things first, Ben, where do you get your ideas? Where do you get your ideas, Chris? This is the ongoing thing of like, you know, do I win the prize for being on this podcast the most? And that is that why you've run out of questions for me? <laughs> you know, I actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's, a, do you know Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast Comedy Bang Bang? It's a comedy, it's a comedy improv interview type thing. And uh, they've been going for 12 years now. And uh, every now and again, the same pairing of guests who run the very first episode, Thomas Lennon and, and Rob Hubel, come mm. back on the show. And every time they come back on the show, the host, Scott Aukerman, this is a, this is a long round about the houses, but, you know, trust me, I'll get there. Uh, the host, Scott Aukerman, prints out the conversation they had on the first episode and gives it to him to read. And they do it again verbatim without drawing attention to the fact. And given that I only ever ask you, where do you get your ideas What's next for you? And is there a drawer full of scripts that, you know, you just reach into and. <laughs> Those are the classics. Yeah. <laughs> but what have you got? Have you got a frequency of, of people that have, that have been, that have done the podcast? I mean, it's like, yeah. So yeah. What's, who's, who's at the, who's at the top of uh, who's done the most? Well, it's like, it's, it's like some sort of Ben Wheatley Fenn diagram. It's like a, like a, like a Ben diagram. It's uh, <laughs> so it's you, it's, it's Hiddleston. I've just spoke to Reese Shearsmith. <laughs> can't get can't get rid of these people. Honestly, I, I thought if I start this interview with, oh, it's you again. Yeah, well, Hiddleston's not even in this film. What are you interviewing him for? Is he done, done some telly or something? <laughs> I know. I need to have a better filter for guests. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> well, this has gone off the rails already. But anyway, yes, um, that's enough of this idea about where you get your ideas. Um, a reader wrote into me uh, a few weeks ago with a question. Uh, for the podcast to answer and I didn't answer it I've held it for later on I'm really really glad I did because right. it was about the greatest self-surgery scenes or the greatest DIY uh-huh. surgery scenes in movies and uh, anyone who's seen it in the earth will know that you have supplied well a couple of doozies uh, with this one Is, were you, was that a, a sort of itch you wanted to scratch? Well I wasn't yeah I wasn't aware of the question that had been sent to you so that that wasn't mm-hmm. part of it Mm-hmm. No, but, uh, but uh, uh, well, I think that, that some of that stuff, and then why those, why why things like um, stitching up wounds, and well, I'm now I'm thinking about what's it, the, what is it, the uh, Rambo one where he uses the bullet to cauterize the wound, which is a classic one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, but I think it, I think it's because that they're they're so memorable because they are. Um, proportionate to people, so the, the viewers understand what those wounds are, because most likely they've they've experienced a cut or a, you know, 
but they haven't experienced the full decapitation or being blown in half, which is like most most movie you know most movie action score. Um, so I think, and that's something you kind of learn early on with the Hammer stuff in Kill List is that it really, if you do something that that people understand, then they will um, it will hit them in a different way than than a more generic movie action does. Because mm. in Kill List, someone gets shot in the head. No one ever talks about that. It's like, it's like because they've seen it in loads of movies and it's just movie stuff, you know, but but the hammer thing is like, oh, Christ, yes, I've hit my hand with a hammer. I know what that feels like and I can times it by 10 and understand what the rest of that is, you know, and it's the same with this. It's like when I was writing the scripts, I was thinking, what would be really bad to happen to you in the woods? And it's, and it's simple as losing your shoes. That's just, that's the end of you, basically, potentially. Mm. And you don't even think about those things like, and I was, it was chuckling, thinking about like you know, shoes are a particular. There's lots of times of technology, aren't they? Like mobile phones and televisions. But one of the big bits of technology that humans have developed, apart from bread, is shoes. And once you don't have your shoes, you're kind of in quite a lot of trouble, you know. Yeah, John McLean told us that. Yeah, exactly. And then it just expanded. I don't think he would have got past that running over the glass. To be honest, he'd have been like, oh god, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd have found his body in Nakatoma Towers in 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 the um, in an air vent about three years later when the smell started, wouldn't they? And, but it's obviously that didn't get past the first draft because it was such a downbeat seventies ending. You know? Yeah, well, my, I have a theory What's that, that yeah, it's, it's Bruce Willis. <laughs> I have a theory that a lot of movies, a lot of uh, big budget blockbusters, <laughs> uh, have a point where the hero does die, and the rest of the movie is their death fantasy. And that yeah. could be you could be onto something there with with Die Hard. Well, I've certainly got that's my theory. What how Up plays out? So, uh, at which point does the hero die in Up? When he goes back into the house before it goes up with the balloons. Oh, that's really early. Yeah, yeah, he has a massive coronary, basically. <laughs> I mean, talking dogs. Come on. A house of floats and balloons. Rubbish. What a load of rubbish. Really took you out of the movie, that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, we've, uh, we've, we've started in the middle somewhat with, uh, with Reese Shearsmith with an axe doing unspeakable things to Joel Fry's foot. Um, but that's, not, that's, not, that's kind of where the movie starts because we, we start with that shot obviously of the standing stone which has a great deal of significance i want to get into that but the next shot is this act of violence that you're wondering first time around you're wondering what exactly is happening here second time around it seems clear to me anyway that that is sack planting the stone that will rip martin's foot so is that something that you wrote in the script or is that something that came about in, in editing it's something that came about through conversation it what the 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 stone the lay the putting of the stones in the ground was something that um while we were filming the film we felt that it would be good to, it felt a bit arbitrary that he'd just trodden on a stone and did his foot in so it, it was something that because i'm editing every night on in the earth so i get back we, we cut it and look at it and we had all the music and everything so we could really experience it and it was a conversation between me and andy stark the producer and he said well you know why don't why doesn't Zach do that? I'm like, all right, good idea. So we went out and shot a whole sequence of him burying stones, and so yes, it was it was dynamic. Interesting, and uh, and obviously that 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 scene as well. Um, I want to skip ahead to the to the, the the scene, the surgery scene, and the amputation scene as well. Have mm. you have you had a chance to watch with an audience yet? No, 
I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it at all in the cinema. <laughs> it's the really. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's just the weirdest experience because obviously it's been on general release in America, and I'm not seen it. Normal events would be you would it would be in a festival and you'd go over to the festival, you'd see the festival screening, and you'd get you'd have a kind of that would be like for me it would be the peak screening. You go okay, right? I understand what this film is now because I've seen the reactions from people, even though it's the, probably the most generous audience you're ever going to get the festival screening audience. But even so, you know, take that and keep it, you know. And then and then I would do the Q and A tour, and then I would see it all over the country, but probably just the beginning and the end of the film. So again, you can gauge the audience and you can gauge it from the Q and A's how it's gone. But with this, it's nothing. It's like you go, okay. Um, it played in Sundance. I did the Q and A for Sundance like four o'clock in the morning here, so I had to go up and then do it. And then, and and but it's also antiseptic because it's the the questions are texted, so and then and and vetted. So you don't get any of those really horrific, <laughs> you know, evil questions. They all get thrown away. So you just get the really anodyne ones. And then, uh, yeah, and it, yeah, just haven't seen it with the audience. So it's it's kind of crazy. Wow. So so in terms of sculpting it, uh, because it, there's this wonderful bits of misdirection and, and tension building in that scene, uh, you know, is that something that you're, are you thinking about audience reaction? Are you thinking about? Yeah, totally. I mean, all the films are, like, you know, are designed to, I mean, that specifically that axe film scene is about the stretching out of time, um, time perception for an audience and, and like uh, trying to kind of create a bu- time bubble of going, oh, my God, I mean, a moment that will never end. It's all going to end badly and there's nothing I can do about it and trying to get that, that feeling to stimulate or simulate that feeling that you have when you've made a really bad decision and it's playing out in real time in front of you and it just is sickening, but you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's that kind of that. So that's, that's what that's all about. Mm. Um, but then, you know, then the full on assault of like the oral and the, the kind of visual um, stuff later on. Yeah. It's all designed for audience, but yeah, not seen it with an audience. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be interesting. I'm sure. But uh, I spoke to Reese just, uh, just before, before Liz about Zach, uh, who's a really interesting character. And he was saying to me that Zach, in a way, and Dr. Wendell are representations of that human desire to impose significance on something that can't be explained, to yeah. to explain the inexplicable. Is that is that almost where you began with this? You were in the middle of, you know, a few weeks into the pandemic and nature was assaulting the human race. And were those things floating around in, in your mind? Totally, yeah. and but it's it's kind of about it. It's about narrative, you know. And and the thing that the big, the other big thing that was happening at the same time as the pandemic is this kind of, um, and had been happening for the last couple of years is this kind of assault on truth and like the idea of who owns the story and what is the story and stories themselves seeming to emerge like narrative as a as a weapon and that seeming to emerge separately from the the information that the story is giving you, which mm-hmm. is which I found really weird over the last, you know, that it, if, if they can manage to, you know, they sort of like they can destroy the trust in the information that you're being given so that you never trust anything ever again. And I felt, felt that had been purposefully being done um, uh, on the internet a lot. And so that kind of seeped into the film of the idea of like the, the thing that makes us different from animals is our unique bit of technology apart from shoes is, um, our ability to make stories out of everything, 
Now, as far as we can tell, until we can understand what cats are saying, it, it, they, there is no, you know, there are no stories for the animals, uh, and our stories are particularly destructive and and a massive stretch. You know, we'll we'll, we'll take three facts, throw them together, and join them into it, some kind of tale some nutty tale and then everyone then if you say it well enough people will follow it which is kind of what films are as well you know so it's all it was all kind of playing into the into the same pot so so sack in sack seems to be more clearly the manifestation of that uh, yeah in the script rather yeah, than more the religious side of it you know it's kind of um and but also that kind of talks back to the whole world of like the folk horror and folk stuff in the UK where some of it is ancient and some of it is really new. It's like, <laughs> it looks like it's old, but it isn't old. It's like Victorian or, you know, cobbled together um, between the 18th and 19th century. So it's kind of, I thought, I find that really interesting that, that, you know, there's these ideas of that, you know, that there's a, a subgenre about ancient times, but the, the actual old, the times they're talking about aren't old at all, you know, and that's another version of that narrative kind mm. of, fudging that humans do. And uh, and Dr. Wendell, I mean, there's, uh, as I said to Reese as well, there's a poster behind me of John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which is uh, mm. another movie like, you know, the Quatermass films and like a lot of stuff that Nigel Neal did. There's a, you know, it's a, it's about that sort of the, the collision between nature and faith and science and religion and mixing them all in, into this one great big jumble. And that seems to be very clearly represented in the Dr. Wendell character. But again, was that something that was on your mind? And those films in particular were things that were on your mind? Yeah, certainly, obviously Stone Tape, but also um, uh, Children of the Stones um, and uh, Owl Service, um, but Quatermass was. And in a way, you can see the film as a journey through different sectors of horror, you know? Yeah. So it's it's kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. And... um, uh the the space the AU two three seven uh number which is where Wendell's camp is is the is a number that is the demarcation for um Hansel and Gretel within within the study of um I can't believe you didn't get that Chris. I I you know what Ben I I'm just looking at my list of questions here and uh yeah I was gonna ask you that next. <laughs> Yeah, so it's in, within the study of kind of, of of folk tales. That's the number for it, and, and it is a Hansel and Gretel tale. Yeah. You know, they end up at the, or, or they end up at the gingerbread house and all that stuff. So it's kind of it's all those things mixed together with a you know, and then with a, a dose of nineteen seventies Doctor Who as well. You know. So is this is this is this something that you were that was percolating anyway pre pandemic? Because this seems to have come together pretty damn quickly. Uh, was this was or did you just pluck the stuff out of the out of the the air? Well, that's generally how it works when you're writing stuff. I mean, it kind of, <laughs> to be fair. But it, this mean, isn't in that drawer of Ben Whitney projects, for example. This wasn't, <laughs> this wasn't in there already. <laughs> you know, it, it, if you looked at the, the development cycles of the other movies, like Field in England or um, Kill List even, they're, they're, it's the same amount of time usually. It's kind of, and I think that's something to do with, the budgets that they are, that you can be that nimble. You can go, right, I've written a script, now I need to find some money for it. Oh, I found some money for it. And then you, when you make it, if it's like a space epic with 
planets blowing up and, and loads of design and stuff, then maybe not so quick, you know, or because the budget, you know, and it becomes exponentially harder to make stuff that as you as you add zeros onto the onto the budget. So this one, this one was very, very quick, Lynn. Um, what sort of did you do any research in terms of bringing those elements together? The the, the Parnag Feg uh, legend, for example, is something that is completely and utterly a Ben Whitley creation. Is, as as yeah. far as my as my diligent got to page two of my Google search research has, <laughs> has yielded. I'm a fool because like what I should have done is just put one page up on the internet called Parnag Feg. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have that would have probably sorted all of this out, wouldn't it? But uh, yeah, that's made up. But it's made up by Zach, kind of. I mean, there were versions of it where where Parnag Feg was like a seventies kids show, which was like the Owl Service or something like that, and it was just something that was stuck in Zach's head. But we never we never bothered with that in the end. But you know, it, but so yeah, I mean, it, it's there's bits of folk stuff kicking about. Um, to, but you know, because there's bits of information in the book that they find that is, that is about Parnak Fake, but the actual the ins and outs of it are all, oh yeah, completely made up. So was it was it also on your mind then that this idea of of nature fighting back of you know, this represented by this figure of Parnak Fake, whether or not he or she or it is real, was that something that was on all our minds, I guess, uh, in the early weeks of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, that it's easy for the humans to put a face, a human face onto it. It's the way that God is apparently some old white dude with a big white beard, isn't it, to white people. It's kind of unlikely that a kind of super deity would have a beard. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's one less thing to tend, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's... You know, uh, it's very specific, isn't it? It's a specific bit of hair, so it makes sense for him to, you know, for them to for him to invest in that idea, and then, yeah, I, I don't think that the, the whatever it is in the woods is attacking them. It's just trying to talk to them, really, in many ways, you know, and it's but they they kind of put stuff onto it in terms of what they think its attitudes are, and they put human attitudes onto it. You know, and that and that's the big mistake. That's part of the narrative, part of the story making that people do with things. But the re- the reality of it of the of this thing is it it's abstract in its commu- way it communicates because it's not human. So it communicates in a very different way, as we find out at the end of the movie. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about that sequence because there is just uh, an assault of these wonderful images. There's tentacles and nature and blood mingling with with air and and all sorts of stuff going on there and you, we see the final shot of of alma or it might be alma uh, a couple of times before we you know before it actually becomes the final shot of the movie so um <laughs> in the script was that basically just one line and then it was something that you you found in the in the editing suite how did that, how did that work out for i always you? knew what it would be which is a kind of recursive it's like a fractured time moment, so that it, because the the plants see time in a different way to us, obviously much slower in in many ways. But it was it was as if they the whatever the thing was was dipping into the minds of Alma and Martin, and then looking inside their brains and then throwing their brains back at them, mm. and and you know and trying to understand them by kind of assimilating them. Um, but yeah, in the script, it wasn't it wasn't described shot for shot because the script would have been about a thousand pages long if I'd have done that. But it, it 
it, I think it was like a line, you know, they look into it and they see some, they see the world, they see inside the world and it is wonderful. I think is what it, what it was. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, and, and on the day, on the last day of shooting, Laura was like, well, when are we shooting that bit where we look inside the world and it's wonderful? I'm like, well, we've done it. It's done. She's like, what? I was, I had a whole thing ready for that. And I was like, oh, but then, we did have like a, there was another day of shooting after I've edited the whole film, which, which was for that sequence, but it was more like we built loads of tanks of, we had tanks of water and dye and then projected the movie through them. And so there was a lot of kind of images refracted through images, through images kind of thing. So that's, that's what's in all that stuff is, is a lot of dye work and, you know, old, old school Doctor Who stuff. <laughs> it, it's it's incredible. Uh, I, I imagine it must have taken you more than an evening uh, working. <laughs> no, today, today we knew what we were shoot, we're going to do, you know. And also Nick, Nick Gillespie, the DOP, yeah. had tested a lot of this stuff, and we because we'd had five months of time to test, 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 test. So he built this. Actually, it was tiny. It was like a vase that was about as I don't know as big as a shot glass, which he was dropping tiny bits of oil and and. Uh, and die into and filming it with a really tiny camera, and so that was that. That was the thing that we just scaled up massively for the for that shoot. It's interesting, also, in that sequence that you seem to affix the audience to Alma's point of view. Mm. That Martin seems to be the the vessel for whatever Parnak Veg is or or is going to be. But then in that last sequence, it's very much Alma. The last shot of the film is Alma or something that looks like Alma. Um, was that, you, you used the word assimilation there, for example. Was that something that, uh, that was in your mind? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, I'd, I'd watched all a load of Harryhausen movies. So like 20,000 Fathoms and 20, 20 million miles from, uh, from home and all those movies. right? Yeah. And I love all those things. And I, but the, the way that they usually set up is it's a scientist, scientist girlfriend and a, and a soldier and the scientist girlfriend's dad is usually the general. So and then when it when it comes down, when the when the big thing happens, the scientist steps up and he's like, I'm going to sort this out. And he knows how to ride jeeps and fire guns and do all sorts. Of, he's really, really, really handy. That's the 50s kind of sci fi tropes. You know, yeah. I wanted to make something that was. The, where the people's roles were reflected, you know, how, how they dealt with this situation was reflected by what they were trained in. So Martin is a guy who works in a lab. He's useless outside of the, uh, the lab. He's a comp- and, and, a, and a terrible coward, which is, he was based entirely on my own, um, how I would have reacted to any of those situations, completely useless, you know, and feckless. And, um, and Alma is someone who works in the, in the, is a park ranger. So she's completely, you know, practical and she knows how to do everything. It's not, a, there's no jump in her skill level to do the things that she does in the film. So that was important to kind of like twist all that genre stuff upside down a little bit. But then also I felt like, the, the, you know, the different groups, the different groups were presenting themselves to the, to the creature and going, well, you know, uh, Zach's going, well, I'm going to, I'm going to praise you and, and give you all this stuff and, um, and, and believe in you and have faith and all that. And uh, then there's the science approach and we're going to study you and try to work out how you work. But really it doesn't want to talk to those people who wants to talk to a person who's a bit more grounded and doesn't have like those different, it, it doesn't have agendas, you know? Mm. 
and and understands the environment that they're in. So so it naturally goes to Alma rather than to to Martin, who's even though he's not mate, he's a bit more benign, but he's not. He still has that kind of similar background to Wendell. You know, she doesn't. The, the thing doesn't trust him as much. I don't think. He also has more baggage, perhaps. I mean, he has yeah. the, uh, the, you know, there's the numerous references to his his parents who clearly didn't make it out of whatever this situation is, because it also feels more more developed than the, the COVID nineteen situation that we're experiencing ourselves. I don't know. I think I, I just didn't. People have said that it's a different thing, but it, I think it, I always thought it was COVID, but it just they just didn't bother saying it because it, you don't. But then I say that out loud, and then we say COVID nineteen all the whole all day long, don't we now? Yeah. We still talk about the name of it, you know. But yeah, I was thinking it, it is, you know, still because it's a weird thing with making the film because slowly time catches up with you, you know. In, in even though it was when I was writing it, I was setting it now effectively because they talk about the third wave in the film. Yeah, and then the third wave is coming and it's hit Bristol already, and it was bad in Bristol. That's like the first line in the film, and we're thinking, oh, you know, there was a point a few months ago. I'm going well. Yeah, now it feels more science fictiony because it hasn't. It's not going to happen, but it kind of is going to happen, which is the tragedy of it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And there's 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 something about the end as well. But you know, I I, I said earlier on that you know it's it's nature fighting back. But as you point out, it's not. It's it's about you know Dr. Wendell thinks that she can communicate with this creature, this spirit, whatever it is, and it will show humanity the way and. My reading of the film, Ben, is that um, you, you have that earlier, you have that earlier speech from Sack where he talks about how Parnak Veg had appeared to people in the past and been asking for, you know, laid name and and had helped people get out of the woods, but but he, she, it was the one that needed help to get out of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me at the end that the Alma figure that appears with with Martin at the end is Parnak Veg in some description. And the last line of the movie is, let me guide you out of the woods. Now, is that, you can read it in a couple of levels. Is Alma saying that to Martin? Or it's Parnak Fag in human form offering an olive branch to the to the human race? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's saying, because, because the Alma figure at that point is a combination of the two things. You know, it's a bridge between the, the earth and the, and, and the people um, and, a, and an emissary in a way. But what what it's offering is not clear, you know, necessarily. It's kind of, I think it's just another competing system on the earth, isn't it? And it's like, it's that thing when you get in a plane and you look down and you see cities and they look like infections, you know, they don't look like, and the, you know, or it's the, it's the third man thing about people looking like ants, isn't it? It's like we, what we do to things, what we're doing to the earth is not dissimilar to a, to, to an infection. So, and it's only something to do with the way that we've, you know, the arrogance of us that we think we, we've been sold this thing about being individual and yet we all do the same stuff all the time. We don't feel that individual, you know, mm. to me, yeah. Yeah, the way that every, you know, and, and we, we are just part of a bigger system, but we just have this kind of illusion that we, we're guiding our own way through it. But we, I don't think we are. So anyway, so this is, this is one system talking to another system and kind of going, maybe there's a way that we don't destroy everything together. Mm. There's also that that uh, that line in the Matrix as well, where Agent Smith talks about humankind being a virus. That yeah, virus, virus. <laughs> <laughs> Mister Anderson. Uh, 
But again, to go back to the the, the Nigel Nealness of it all, and the Quatermassiness of it all, and uh, even the, um, the 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 Prince of Darkness of it all as, as well, in that you have you have this science aspect which is represented by by Doctor Wendell, and you delineate the movie into very very clear segments so you have the the early exploratory segment you have the the texas chainsaw segment as you as you say with with sack and then you have the the final the final segment with with dr wendell who is really really interesting and it was can you talk about what you were what you wanted to do with that with that character and with that segment and how difficult it is to have a character um explain the plot essentially to people without it feeling like they're explaining the plot to people. You see, the whole exposition thing is hard. I mean, and I've been, I've made movies with no exposition in yeah. purposefully. And I was always quite leery about exposition, but I kind of came to love it over time and thinking, well, actually, I don't, if it's, I, I kind of enjoy the, the, the ins and outs of exposition when I see it in stuff sometimes. If it's too clunky, then, yeah, it's, it's a problem. But then I think there's something to do with uh, episodic TV has got quite a lot of exposition. So I'd watched a lot of it over the last 10 years, you know, and thinking, well, I, 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 I don't mind being told. And in a way, you have to get told certain you know for the for the movie to move on to be to give it that other side. You need you need to know the specifics of the you know of of the Parnag Feg stuff and the book and where she's got the stuff on. Otherwise it just doesn't work. So mm. yeah, I mean, there, there was, there was back and forth with that. I mean, we did a version of it with no exposition in it. It just was, it was more edged towards being like a tone poem, you know, and you kind of go, well, you know, it's the bits of it are good, but it suddenly feels kind of empty because you need a bit of something extra to chew on while you're thinking about what's going on. And then going back to those, Nigel Neal things it's like they were not those are things are not afraid of exposition at all you know and they'll happily stand and talk and talk and talk about the yeah. ins and outs of the technology and same with Doctor Who and stuff and I and I thought well I like that I like that I like the speed of that I like people getting an old book out yeah banging it on the side and opening it up and talking about it for, for a couple of minutes and it, it's just a different different bit of pace from the rest of the movie in that respect but I think that what was interesting to me though was like the way that Hayley Squires played the part and she said to me early on, she says, I want to do it with a kind of posh accent. I was like, oh, okay. I, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, if, if you want to do it. And, and in a way she ends up being like Barbara Steele or something, or, or kind of she's bringing this kind of hammer horror thing to it as well, which which became, you know, made absolute sense, you know, to me, um, which is something, I, it wasn't something I thought of initially, but it kind of, it, you know, as it as it went on and saw it, I was like, all right, yeah, this is, this is definitely the way to go with it. Yeah, it really works. It's, it's also that fifties, almost fifties B movie, sci fi B movie archetype of the of the scientist who's lost the plot completely and is yeah, exactly. You know, she's got about five seconds in the film where you think she might be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool! It's oh, oh well. <laughs> she's off the deep end. Oh no! And you have about three seconds with uh, with Reese when he shows up. Maybe not even three seconds. Minus three seconds with Reese, yeah. There's no, yeah. I mean, if anyone who says, "Oh, I saw that coming," I mean, Jesus, we got a special badge for them, you know. <laughs> uh, Reese says that uh, Sack's surname in the script is Whitehead. Yeah, it was, but yeah, it's not. It's not that it wasn't featured in the film. So because it's a, 
I think that the film that the in the earth talks to field in England, it's in communication with it, but it's not it that would I think I toyed with that, but it's to mention the whitehead thing, but then I thought, well, really, I didn't write um a field in England, so it's slightly treading on Amy's toes to nick her character names and and literally tie it together. So yeah, that's why I didn't do that. <laughs> so it's more of a spiritual successor. It's more of a cousin. Yeah, I think it's part of my, you know, my recovery process from making a field in England. Because <laughs> Free Fire's the same. Free Fire's built in England as well. If you look at it, if you look at its constituent parts. Um, and so is this again, you know, it's just trying to just slowly trying to get it out. <laughs> Understand it. <laughs> Just expanding it a little bit more each time, so now you're in a in a cops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it I, I like the idea of the characters existing. It's kind of part of the the game of casting people again and again. Is like that the, how they're con- interconnected and stuff with the other movies. I quite like that. It's it's not important important to understanding everything anything, but it it kind of makes it's that but it's also like the family nature of making movies together all the same people again and again and the cottage industry of us making these films which uh you know are kind of resolutely weird movies which you know aren't being made in the volume that they used to be made you know yeah and uh you also have because you're you you repeat some of the casting uh with with reese here in particular um i have to say if i'm ever in a branch of millets which is very rare and I see Reese Shearsmith also in that branch of millets. I'm running the fucking mile. <laughs> uh, I, honestly, that what is it with what was it with you, Reese Shearsmith and Tents? What are you trying to tell us, Ben? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it it's that thing. I mean, I remember going to screen do a screening in Russia, and that, and they show. I think it was the first three films as like. Kill List and Down Terrace and Sightseers. And the first, they'd watched all the movies. And the first question is, why are you afraid of naked people and old people? You know, and it's like, it, 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 they're weird themes that end up in movies that you are completely blind to. You know, you just go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that's happened. <laughs> it's just happened. So just, I don't know. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Yeah. All right. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, I've got to go in a second here. But uh, in terms of the other connections in the movie, regardless of regardless of the connections between A Field in England and this movie, there are connections in the film itself between Sack and Dr. Wendell and between Martin as well, who seems to be drawn to this scenario. He has the rash in his arm. They've had the ringworm, which is, which is an interesting link. Um, when writing the film, would those, was that an organic connection in your mind was that something that, that that came about during the writing process well i think that the idea that that the fungus is everywhere and that that the you know the whole thing about mycorrhiza and it and the and the fungal networks thing is all real you know yeah. the, the, so but then i just extended it a bit and thought what, where else is this fungus you know what if it was in our you know in our houses and in our in us and then why are we you know, because I always I do feel like a kind of slight victim to my own biology all the time. Like I'm like, why am I furious today? I don't know. I woke up furious and now, you know, and now I'm really depressed. Why has that happened? I don't remember. Nothing's happened to me that should make me that way. Is it some kind of, you know, a lack of salt in my diet or too much salt or something? Something's in me that's gone wrong that that mm. is causing some kind of emotion, which clearly is not to do with my brain, you know. So and I started thinking, yeah, if the if the 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 thing was everywhere, 
could it manipulate the people as well and move them around like and draw them towards it to communicate to them so it, that that was part of the overall plan of it and then yeah that he he felt like he Martin felt like he was being drawn back to Wendell because he thought he was in love with her but it just was he was any of that real it's hard to it's hard to say you know she doesn't seem that bothered by it whatever it was <laughs> <laughs> everyone's a bit like you know grow up Martin that's a bit weird <laughs> <laughs> True, and again, by the time he meets her, she's off the deep end. So it's it's it, it, maybe he's going, hey, yeah, maybe I wasn't that into you after all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that's the whole. That's, you know, it's not in the book of romance, is it? Go to a research center in the middle of the woods that's researching fungus and then make your move. It's like <laughs> it's not a thing, is it? It's more. I'm doing serious work here. What do you want? Oh. <laughs> that's that's page three hundred. That's the appendices of uh, the Hammer of the Witches. It's it's all in there. Ben, I'm going to let you go. Pleasure as always, man. Thank you so much indeed. That's on, Chris. See you later. Thank you. All right, so that was Ben Wheatley. Now it is time to talk about In the Earth. Dan, In the Earth, are you okay? Not in the heights. Not in the heights. Okay, good. I'm okay then. I'm okay. You're okay? All right. I'm good. So let's start with what we usually start with, which is a general overview of the film. What do we make of this? So are we all big Ben Wheatley fans here? This this feels like... I'm not going to say a return to form because... I, I'm one of the few people who really liked Rebecca, but uh, this feels much more Ben Wheatley than Rebecca did. Well, yeah, he he sort of seems to specialise. I kind of like his films, which I, I, I call them British pastoral mayhem, if you like. Not very catchy, Dan, I'll be no, honest with you. No, no. All right, should we try... Uh, Bucolic British Nightmares. They, those sound like folky projects that would be the name of the music that is played at the forest. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he, he puts the c*** in countryside. How about that? Oh, Dan! What? what? I mean, Come on, I, I'm, man. I'm, I'm, working, I'm, just, I'm just spitballing here. Anyway, look, it, no, but it is very much that kind of like, I love Sightseers, Kill List, A Field in England, and now this. It's like films where sort of people go off into the, you know, the British countryside and horrible, horrible yes. things happen. This um, movie is like Sightseers and A Field in England had a baby. Yes, yes. But I, I also like it because it is just such a, it's one of those films which feels very original, but also very familiar which I, I, I really like. So you kind of got that sort of the folk horror-ness of it, the, the psychedelics going on. Um, it's a little bit sort of, it kind of made me think of like old Doctor Who or Sapphire and Steel. I don't know if people know that. I, like mm-hmm. that weird, bizarre 80s TV show. It has that not kind of like... Not to be confused with Remington Steel. This is a different thing. Sapphire and Steel. At all. Explain, Very different. Explain what Sapphire and Steel is for people it's, who don't know, Dan. David McCallum and Joanna Lumley played kind of like interdimensional investigators. Yes. And it's got that feeling of it. It's a little bit Hansel and Gretel, a little bit Heart of Darkness. There's just lots going on. There's lots going on. And and, and I like that. It's, it's juicy and full of nice, juicy meat to chew on. And mushrooms. Ooh. And mushrooms to eat and ingest and make you go to funny places in your mind. Which, as someone, Dan, uh, uh, you know, you're more psychedelically inclined yeah. than, than I am. I, I, I no, presume, I Dan, you have ingested mushrooms I have in your past? I have ingested mushrooms, yes, I have. Yes, psychedelics. Yeah. And uh, it gave me a bit of a stomachache. <laughs> but uh, along the way, there were some interesting uh, interesting things happened. Did you release spores? Uh, no, I didn't release spores. I did have a realisation that the original Star Wars trilogy is entirely about hair. <laughs> what? 
It was just a very Chewbacca-centric uh, yeah, well, revolution. I mean, just, you know, it's Chewbacca, the Ewoks. They can, they can only defeat the Empire through the, the use of hair. So they go to the Cloud City and Lobot has no hair and the, the Empire hair, runs pe- yeah, roughshod. Of, yeah. yeah, people without hair are dodgy in the original Star Wars trilogy. Darth Vader, Do- no hair. Yeah, the um, Emperor, no hair. Yeah, Jabba the Hutt, no hair. Jabba the Hutt, no hair, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. R2-D2, so no hair. R2-D2, exception, not, not organic. I'm sidetracking the podcast. This is a shock and a, and a new thing for for you, Dan. Um, all right, okay. Well, listen, we'll, we'll maybe come back to that in a second. Uh, ben, have you uh, just injected heroin at your eyeballs, or you know, have you ever done mushrooms? What's your your extent of the experience, the psychedelic experience that the characters go through in this movie? I, I don't partake of mushrooms of any kind. I've never taken psychogenic tropic whatever mushrooms, and I just don't like mushrooms. If you if you put mushrooms in food, I'm probably not going to eat that horrible oh, then stuff. I'm going to have to be like oh I really don't like mushrooms so I have ben, to try and you pick don't them sound out. like a fun guy oh hey <laughs> <laughs> hey uh, um, listeners uh, Ben made that joke just before we went on air and it made me laugh uh, quite a lot so I decided to nick it and uh, deploy it when the time was right clearly I misjudged by several minutes but that's fine <laughs> uh, yeah I'm in full agreement uh, mushrooms are, are bad and evil and should be catapulted into the sun and so it makes sense that they are in some ways, the delivery system of of evil. <laughs> yeah. or, or one one person's evil is another person's sublimation, or you know, another yes. person's transcendence. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, talk about that, shall we? Let's actually talk about something rather than nonsense. I don't know if you can hear that, but Parnak Veg is outside and he's not very happy. Uh, I have workmen outside my building and they are clanging and banging away, but they should be gone in the next ten to fifteen minutes. If you do hear them. Apologies, uh, but let's talk about let's talk about the uh, the movie and what it's about in general terms and your reading of the end. So, a film that came to mind for me when I was watching this. There's there's lots of different references and different focal points, as you said, Dan, in terms of some of the things. You know, there's Doctor Who certainly. There's mm-hmm. a lot of Nigel Neal in this, as Ben acknowledged and as Reese Shearsmith acknowledged as well when I interviewed him for the regular pod. There's an awful lot of emphasis on that clash between science and faith, between folklore and the precision that science brings. Mm. So two movies that it reminded me of were John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which didn't seem to be a huge touchstone for for Ben Wheatley, but it's something that, you know, again, there's that juxtaposition between very, very, very smart people meddling with forces beyond their comprehension. And Saul Bass's directorial debut, and in fact, the only movie he made, Phase Four. Have you seen that movie? No. No, okay, I've seen phases movie. one through three of the MCU, but I have not <laughs> seen phase four. Well, both phase four of the MCU and phase four have will have ants in them. No spoiler. Uh, so phase four is about two scientists, uh, played by Nigel Davenport and Michael Murphy, who basically ants announce themselves as the next stage of evolution on the planet and they they start taking over and building huge hives in the desert and these two scientists go to investigate and try and you know one of them tries to converse with the ants and the other one tries to destroy the ants and gets very paranoid about what they're up to and basically it's all about the next stage of of evolution and you know they you know the ants are are trying to trigger that and in some ways are that and there's a little bit of human ant bonding going on it's a really deeply weird but amazing amazing film um so this film reminded me a little bit of that as well and in that for me it's a little bit about this parnag vague character being whatever it is in my eyes nature trying to 
connect and communicate with humans to take them beyond whatever this pandemic has wrought to the next stage of human evolution. And that the, mm. the figure we see at the end of the movie is, in, in essence, it is not Alma, it is Parnag Feg or this ecosystem in human form. And it, that's essentially the star child moment of this movie. Is that, that's my take on it. That's kind of where Ben was going, I think. But what about you? What about you guys? I, I don't go quite as full 2001 in the kind of it's trying to push us forward. For me, it felt like it was more about humans trying desperately to inflict meaning on something that is inherently unknowable, like faced mm-hmm. with something which we just literally can't comprehend and that we can only really experience and try and get a sense of knowledge around it but we can't really inflict any meaning on that and you have uh, Zach has his very specific interpretation of what this means and he's very driven by that belief and then you have Dr Wendell who has her own interpretation of what this all means and that she can communicate it with it through I don't know lights and sounds and that he communicates with it through pictures and they're very staunch in their beliefs of this is how we connect with this thing which at the same time is completely maybe not ambivalent to them but kind of so much bigger than they could possibly know and at the same time our two heroes of a sort are sort of just caught in the middle of it all pinging around and to me that felt like that's what Wheatley was getting at with this one in terms of Mm -hmm. with the pandemic as being rocked both by nature but also by just this situation that is completely unknowable and people trying to kind of impose some sort of order or meaning onto it uh, while at the same time we are all just pinging around and trying not to get our feet hurt um it seemed to be uh, um, do you know what that sort of i i admired the film for that because i think yeah. it could be really bad and really woolly to be like the whole point is that it's open to interpretation and that there is no specific meaning and it's about people trying to find meaning in something that is impossible to find meaning in that could be really woolly and annoying but i think it actually plays really nicely with this moment and with ben wheatley's skill sets as well like his mm. best films I, kill list i keep going back to even though it's fucked up because i'm trying to like piece those pieces together kind of work out how it all fits and i like that about his films that sort of elliptical nature Hmm. yeah i mean i that that makes a lot of sense because it is is a very covid film in the sense that it kind of reflects our times and it's about heightened isolation on the one hand and heightened connectivity on the other hand so we're all we've all been separated from each other physically, but thrust into an even more connected scenario, you know, through well, things like this that we're talking on now, Squadcast, or, uh, or, or, other, or other forms of, of, of communication. And, and the way that that can become weirdly overwhelming almost. So I took it as a kind of like the, I'm going to try and say this right, Mycorrhiza, 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 Mycorrhiza. Yeah. Anyway, that's the science version of Parnag Feg, uh, which is this idea of fungal life, which which becomes connected over a large area. So it's almost like a, its own neural network in a way, which which is what Alma's been exposed to ultimately and whether or not she's become a vessel for this entity or has just simply had her perceptions changed by it but in that sense you know she's gone from this you know this position of isolation extreme isolation and and then they're not just isolated by the fact that there's a pandemic going on they're also in the woods which of course you know on a very in a primeval way is is 
somewhere where people get lost and feel alone. Mm. And so she's, uh, yeah, not only in there, but she's also being hit by this, you know, overload almost of Zoom calls, <laughs> metaphorical, <laughs> metaphorical <laughs> Zoom calls, just like, ah, oh, I've had enough or it's too much. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of my takeaway yeah. of the whole thing. Well, the thing. thing about a movie like this as well is that we can all go, well, we're all right. <laughs> Nobody is wrong in this case. Yeah, uh, and I think I think you're you're I think we're all onto something in a in a weird way. Um, Reese Shearsmith certainly talked about the idea of trying to know the unknowable and trying to impose meaning upon the unknowable in the regular interview I did with him. But you can go back and listen to that in in recent weeks, because uh, three weeks ago I guess now that the, the movie came out. So go back and and check out that interview. And he also talked about the idea of you know, Sack being some sort of conspiracy theorist. And so someone who looks into, a, you know, who approaches this subject and this topic from a very specific point of view and goes down the rabbit hole and looks for the darkest meanings in things and, and becomes wedded to that and, and infests in that deeply so much so that it becomes his character. So I think that's certainly part of it. But there also seems to me that there is an element of, as Dan said, the mycorrhizal cloud, the fungal cloud, if you want to anthropomorphize it and say that this is Parnag Feg, a sorcerer of some kind who mm. has achieved transcendence and become part of the woods here and is then trying to, I don't know, increase his power base or maybe take a human vessel so that he can go out and, you know, spread his gospel to the world. The last line of the movie is Alma, or as I see it, something that looks like Alma, standing over Martin and saying, let me guide you out of the woods. Now, that is a line that I also think has multiple layers of meaning. It mm. could be literal, let me guide you out of the woods. It could be Alma literally saying, let me guide you, guide you out of the woods. Or it could be Parnag Feg or this fungal spore cloud thing saying to mankind, let me propel you to the next level. Let me take you out of this morass, this this unholy hole that you have dug for yourself. Let me guide you out of it. That's that's my reading of it. Is there, you know, again, you may have, you, your, your mileage may vary. I love a last line that just has you like thinking about this for weeks on end, where there are so many interpretations to that. I think it's fascinating. That it, It's a really, really great ending to the film for me where it's just like on so many levels it could mean many many different things but I think it's interesting yeah this idea that maybe she has become a vessel for whatever the brain of the forest is and I mean I get the sense as well that it's not necessarily all transferred into her but now she is just a part of that wider network that obviously the 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 trees and the spores and all of that are still all talking to each other is still all there but she has become part of that network and whether i mean you never know how much to take anyone for face value in this film everyone is shady as hell um <laughs> apart from our central twosome and well even martin is is holding on to secrets even martin withholds information from people yeah so he doesn't tell alma for example about his connection to dr wendell whose name I always hear in the tune of Mr. Wendell by Arrested Development, but uh, maybe that's just me. And, you know, so so even he, who, you know, it seems like a really lovely, jovial guy because he's played by Joel Fry and there's just something about him that's just innately likable. Even he is, I don't think he's got darkness necessarily inside him, but there's certainly, there's a depression at the centre of, of this character, which I think is 
is interesting. So what are his true motives for going into the into the woods? How much does he really know about what Dr. Wendell is up to? Hmm. Also, regarding that last line, let's not forget that, that Alma is actually literally a guide. That's a job. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. So. I was going to say, in, be- in, in that moment, is the has everything kind of gone up to the next level? Has she become part of everything? Or is it that in the daytime, away from all of the craziness and, and the threat and all of that, that there is a sort of return to normalcy and that they are able to kind of break the spell of being trapped in the woods again? That That's also a sort of potential mm-hmm. reading that at night and in the heat of everything, everyone goes a bit nuts. And then in the kind of colder light of day, there's a a sense of relief there and a return to some kind of normalcy potentially. I think she's been affected. I wouldn't go as far as Chris to say that she's she's now a you know a vessel possessed. Yeah, possessed or anything. I just think she's uh, as 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 people do when they imbibe psychedelic substances, just uh, had her mind opened, <laughs> just very drastically, <laughs> blown the hell open. Yeah, <laughs> blown the bloody doors off. <laughs> All right. Okay. So there's uh, there's there's a number of interesting uh, things to talk about with the movie as well. We don't have a lot of time today. So uh, let's talk about the fact that the movie is split into three distinct sections, which is really interesting. And, and I wanted to ask you, which is your favorite section? So we have the first section, which is the, the calm before the storm, which is where we get, we get to know Martin and Alma. There's a, 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 a sense of disquiet. There's a sense of something in the woods, something tracking them. You obviously have that that cautionary tale that Ben was talking about, about, you know, don't go into the woods and don't camp without any shoes on. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, literally the opening shot of the movie is is prefiguring that, is, is setting that up. Yeah. Uh, you also have, then you have the second section, which is the Texas Chainsaw section, which is, you know, dark, grim, psycho horror with a, with a side order of really, really fucking impressive gore, I have to say. Yeah. And then the third section is psychedelic weirdness. It's, oh, it's, a, it's a hard question. Uh, oh, actually, just to say about that opening shot, I love that opening shot because it's like it's like someone planting a seed, except it's it's a bit of sharp stone. And that, of course, mm. is I check actually because I I talked to Ben myself for a piece in the magazine. You scum! Um, before you, Chris, and fuck you. Well, you know, uh, I got the first word on India. Did you ask him the same questions I asked him? Probably. Yeah. Where do your ideas come from, yeah. Ben? Do you yeah. have like a do you have a, like a drawer full of, of of movies that are unmade, and you just reach in the drawer and you pick one out? Yeah. Do you hate mushrooms as much as you seem to? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Who is the best Ben of all the Bens? Is it you or is it or is it Ben Travis? Gentle Ben, yes. surely. Gentle yes. Ben. Back to the point. Yes. So you talked to Ben Wheatley as well. And he did confirm for me, because I, I thought this was the case, but he confirmed for me that that is Zach at the very beginning. The opening shot is Zach. Yes, yes Dan, he confirmed it as well he to me well, fine, in the Sports good. Special interview. Well, they, everybody's just heard it then. Fine. Anyone listening to this is going, they fucking know hell. Let's move Stupid. on. Stupid. <laughs> I love those opening shots as well, though. Like when I saw this... Um, it was introduced by Ben Wheatley. It was at the BFI. He introduced the film. And one of the words he used to describe it at the beginning in his intro was that he he wanted people to see it kind of big and loud and abrasive. That word abrasive. And then the film starting with these incredibly loud uh, kind of close-up shots of rocks being cracked open. He's like, he's sort of splitting your head open within the first kind of couple of seconds. Even though nothing gory or kind of particularly visceral is happening, it feels very, very intense. The sound of those rocks cracking 
attacking, the sort of intensity of them mm-hmm. shattering was like, okay, strap yourselves in because this is <laughs> this is Ben Wheatley back in action, baby. Anyone, anyone here not spoken to Ben Wheatley? Anyone here not <laughs> been in the same room as him. Ben Wheatley? I was just there while he mm. was speaking. Okay, no, fine. Mm. Exclusively told me. Yes, Chris. No one else is going to be speaking to Ben Wheatley or looking at him. Maybe that's what I have to like. <laughs> to lay this down as a rule. Uh, not only do they have to be speaking exclusively to the Empire Podcast, they are not allowed to look at anyone else or have anyone else look at them for the next two to three weeks. That sounds I think reasonable. Yeah, that seems, totally. that sounds reasonable. But anyway, to go, to go back to the question, the original question, sorry, before, before yes. that. I, it's really tough because I, I absolutely, I, I, was, I wasn't sure at the start because I was a little bit like, Oh, it's locked down and this everything's so depressing and uh, do I really am I really sort of in f- the mood for a film which is just dealing with that head on like literally talking yeah, there's a reference to the third wave quite early on but it was it was good it was interesting I'm not saying it was bad it was just my mood but then when it went like as you say Texas Chainsaw I really enjoyed that and I thought Shearsmith uh Reese uh, was 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 brilliant. <laughs> Strange way of saying, isn't it? Shearsmith Reese. That's how I say it. What's wrong with that? I'm sure he'd love that Shearsmith Reese. Star of Gentleman, the League of. Yeah, it scans better that way. It does. Um, Number nine inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he he's brilliant. He's my favourite thing in the film. I love him. He's so good in this, right? He's yeah. so good, especially because he has that baggage as well of you know another tent related Ben Wheatley shenanigan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> behind him. Yeah, like he's really good in High Rise, but. You know, I, I'm sure none of us have forgotten that shot yeah. from A Field in England. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Reese told me, when I spoke to him exclusively for the Empire podcast, that his character in this sack, in the script, had the same surname as his character from A Field in England. Oh, Whitehead. right. But that, yes. Ben then went on to say that he felt a little uncomfortable with that because A Field in England was an Amy Jump script, so he decided he didn't want to basically incorporate or ride roughshod over her creation and he didn't feel it was really his place to to, to make that connection. So it's not an overt connection within the film, but it is it is something that, that exists, it lurks. It's in the mycorrhizal cloud mm. if you if you want of this movie. Yeah. But I, I think I think I'd go for the the, the final third is probably the, my favorite just because uh, it's just so impressive the sound design and also the 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 trippy visuals by uh by I think Syriac was behind those sort of old school trippy visuals like not not visual effects mm. in, in in not digi- not digital effects i should say rather kind of like playing with uh water dye you know dye in water in a tank in front of the the camera and stuff like it, it, it just it just really really powerful stuff so and, and that, that kind of that really stayed with me because you know i i like a good a good horror movie but there's a lot of them out there but there aren't so many movies that look like the last act of this film for me it was that middle section that really stayed with me i think especially seeing it in a cinema with a big group of people i have missed horror films on the big screen so much and all of the reactions to the foot stuff was <laughs> amazing like even before you get to the toe chopping just the oh the the, the skin flapping and sewing up the foot and all of that and hearing oh, skin flapping oh no oh, it's so bad and oh. hearing everybody sort of viscerally react to that hearing people go oh in the cinema was great and then i mean the way that they play out that toe chopping scene i think is amazing the way that he layers in that dark comedy which i think is even there in films as dark as kill list i think you have those moments of dark mm-hmm. comedy and i love that about ben whitley's films that really tricky tonal balance and th- those kind of moments where you think he's going to chop it off and then he kind of backs out or he kind of yeah it's a practice he shot misses. he misses and he all of these yeah. things yeah 
he's playing with the audience so much so to experience that with an audience to hear people going oh and then and then it be the fake out and then the way that he times it so perfectly the direct hit everybody was like groaning and wincing and uh it was horrible and i loved it it was great so that's the bit of the film that has most stayed with me um more than the trippy stuff i'd say yeah same absolutely same i mean i i I love the 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 last third as well I like the opening also, and I'm very jealous, Ben. I don't know, Dan, whether you've seen this with an audience in the cinema, but, you know, I got to no. see it on my computer screen, mm. as Ben intended, uh, <laughs> with with headphones. And that meant that the soundscape, which is really, really good, and, and Clint Mansell's score mm. is fantastic. And so that was living in my head, and that's a great experience. But, man, I'd love to have seen this thing with a proper... Dolby Digital 5.1, maybe even 7.1, super uber Atmos surround sound experience, and people going, "What the fuck?" during the uh, the toe choppy scene. Now that, that would have been tremendous, and the effects. I mean, from a gorehound perspective, are really. I mean, genuinely. Because this thing was made on a shoestring budget. Yeah. And they used that shoestring to sew his foot up halfway through. Amazing. Um, I, I fully... It's so good. The flapping skin. Yeah. The flapping skin is just like, I've recently had toe surgery. No flapping skin. No, no, you know, Sharapa is suddenly bringing down an axe on my toes. But that's, it's such a fundable part of your feet. It's why, one of the reasons why Die Hard works so well. Uh, is because your hero is reduced to the, the virgin soft flesh of his feet is exposed. And it's the same thing here. And yeah, it's it's so icky and gruesome and, and really, really well done. Although would a stone rip Martin's foot open as much as it does? Well, I it, might it's, question No, but that. it's not a random stone. It's deliberately made like a like a flint arrowhead or something. Yeah, it's but he like... steps on it and then you, so you, you, you'd have to step on it and then drag for it to rip his feet open to the extent that it does. He I would think, have to step I, yeah. on it and then drag. I think that's what happened. And then he you has think? to walk on it for a while anyway before yeah. anything even happens. So oh. it's probably getting caught on bits of twigs and... Yeah. Ooh. Oh, my God. I tell you I tell you as well, one of the things I really loved about this movie, and this makes me sound obviously you know, sociopathic at best, psychopathic at worst, is the, it's just the, the, the authenticity of it all. Again, I've never had my toes chopped off and I've never had something amputated and then cauterized. But I love that whenever Dr. Wendell cauterizes his wound, he passes out. I love that. Mm. I mean, you never see that in movies. And he doesn't pass out in that comedy way that a mo- you know that you do, you get in movies. He just slumps and he is gone. Yeah. And there's, there's also something really interesting, and I spoke to Ben about this a little bit, about the fact that his hero, Martin, is essentially useless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a really lovely subversion of, of how these things usually go. I love, there's a great moment talking about the the, the, the the comedy in it though. There's one moment that really made me laugh, which is when he finally gets there, you know, he's been through all this, he's had his toe chopped off. He finally gets to Dr. Wendell and the first thing that happens is she comes up with a swab to put in his nose. He's like, oh yeah, of course. Like, you know, <laughs> just like that sort of COVID etiquette, just that that cannot be, nothing is more important than making sure, you know, you do your lateral flow test or whatever, you know, yeah. that you do this. And it's just like, there is a moment you just stop short and go, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, let's do the, and then, and then let's get back to the, to all the horror and the craziness and everything. 
I mean, I, th- I think in terms of the characters, I feel like all of the characters are basically all of us in this pandemic. So we are all kind of slightly confused and pathetic, a bit like Joel Fry's character. We are all kind of normally competent people who are then suddenly feeling extremely lost, like Alma. We are all going a little bit stir crazy, like Zach, and engaging in home crafts of varying degrees, maybe some more sinister than others. Uh, and we're all just kind of blasting noise out to try and communicate with each other and and keep each other together so it feels like all of these characters kind of relate quite nicely to the feelings and emotions i did wonder because again something ben mentioned probably in your interview as well but at the bfi screening was that he started Mm. writing this like two weeks into the pandemic and it was just a visceral reaction to the feelings he was experiencing so that made me think a lot about how yeah, maybe the different characters in this are all kind of aspects of his personality and his emotional response to everything, that it's not necessarily conflicting uh, viewpoints, is that it's all that conflict in all of us and that confusion played out just across separate people. Mm. So instead of getting lost in sourdough starters or learning to play a new instrument or getting really, really addicted to Lego, Sack has started making these weird tableau of people. Look, they're quite impressive pictures. They're 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 very very well shot. He's developing them on his own in the woods with not very much equipment. Like, Mm. if he wasn't an absolute raging psycho, he could have a good exhibition going there. Well, he still could. I mean, he basically does. But yeah, I I thought this movie was was absolutely terrific. And uh, speaking of sack and speaking of of gore and... (laughs) I think we've talked enough about the touchy-feely stuff, um, but his death is pretty hardcore <laughs> and comedic in that really uncomfortable, unsettling that's, way. That's how accidents happen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the way he just suddenly... <laughs> he sounds really... Because that's one of the things I love about Zach is how reasonable he sounds. Yeah. Which again, as Reese Shearsmith told me exclusively on the Empire podcast, is a performance choice that he made specifically, that he could have played him ultra unhinged from the moment you meet him. But he and Ben had basically said, look, you know, within 20 seconds, people are going to know something's up with you. So, <laughs> you know, you could play it completely off the wall or you could just play it as a really reasonable guy, just, you know, who's just being very, very calm about everything. Mm. And he keeps his own accent. And that's, you know, that's very, very lovely and disarming. Uh, but at the end, like, you know, when he is going slightly full psycho, how he just refers to that very, very reasonable insistence, like, could someone just take me to hospital, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Despite everything that's happened, he gives up every bit of faith in Parnagfag and, you know, curing himself on some sort of weird metaphysical level. No, I need to go to the A&E, please. <laughs> made yeah. me laugh. Yeah. Made me laugh. No, it, it made me laugh too. It was good. And I also really liked, you were talking about the realism of it. I actually really liked, uh, I, I got really uncomfortable with the bow and arrow, funnily enough. Oh my God, I yeah, because the, the sound it made yeah. and the way, yeah. But it was just treated like, it was almost like how I would feel. So seeing Alma run from him with a bow and arrow, I kind of made me feel exactly how I would feel if I was running from someone who was shooting arrows at me. And 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 the fact that, of course, you know, and most of the time in filming when we see someone fire a bow, they're usually, a, you know, they're like Robin Hood or Legolas and they hit every time. But the fact that obviously it's really bloody hard to hit someone who, running in the woods. So, of course, he keeps missing. But that just makes it even more tense because every time he misses, you're like, oh, she's got away. No, hang on a minute. She hasn't got away. He's still firing. And he's keeping it in a wide shot, almost rooted to Sack's point of view. 
So we're just seeing her disappear into the into the distance, and we're getting the sound, the kind of the whooshing sound it yeah. makes as it flies past her and then clunks off a tree. Yeah, I'd love to know how they did that. You know, whether it was whether it's rudimentary CG or there's plates involved, or whether you know they just denuded an arrow in some way and and just fired an arrow at her, you know, knowing that it wouldn't cause any damage if if put a cork reason. on the end, yeah, yeah, or it, you know, could be made of rubber or something. Who who knows? Yeah, I think it's yeah. just because the film as well makes really big effects out of like small things that really hurt, which is something that Ben Wheatley does really well in general. I think of he doesn't go for the extreme stuff. Obviously, the chopping off the toes is fairly extreme but he's not kind of chopping people's full limbs off or whatever or things that kind of unimaginably painful it's what if something sliced into your bare foot or your skin was flapping open on your foot or your toes are chopped off and i think because he makes those things very very visceral and real then it makes you go even though it's slightly pathetic the way those arrows are being fired you go if one of these hits it it actually could really take her out. And yeah. um, I, I think that all comes down to, yeah, how he makes these small things very impactful rather than going for the big extreme stuff that's just kind of almost unimaginable. I think it's it's more that imaginable pain that's worse. Um, so the last thing I'm going to mention before we wrap this up is ringworm. I don't think I asked Ben about the significance of the ringworm, the, the fact that both Dr. Wendell and Martin had it previously, the idea that something is drawing Martin inexorably to this site, which is also interesting in that, obviously, if you take one person's reading of the end of the movie, then he is actually not contacted or possessed or haunted or a vessel for Parnak Veg in any way. So what is the significance of the ringworm and what is the significance of, of Martin, in fact? In terms of the ringworm, I, I think it's just the idea of something that's like living something that's kind of living inside you and we're living inside the forest and then the spores are going inside people and that that kind of various yeah. layers of biological weirdness. So this is basically nature is mad as hell with what we've done to it mm-hmm. and it's not going to take it anymore. And so it's able to predict the future somehow or sending out some sort of signal on some biological microcellular level to draw these people here so that therefore they could uncork Parnag Feg. Yeah, I don't know uh, even if I go so far as to think that there's necessarily as much order to it as that, but I do feel like this sense that they are drawn in there and then held there because obviously the 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 spore cloud is sort of trapping them in. But I think that's kind of the beauty of this. I don't know what the reason for that would be. And the kind of process of figuring out what that might be and and kind of how much the forest is sentient and whether it actually has a plan or whether it's just drawing people in who have that sense of curiosity or who are looking for something Mm. because i think martin strikes me as sort of looking for dr wendell more than he is looking for anything else you know Mm. i think it's easy to get lost in this film which is a pretty neat trick of Ben Wheatley's, really, because I think it's a film about being lost and not really knowing which bits of it mean anything and just trying to kind of figure out for yourself what that meaning might be and uh, how that relates to everything that's gone on over the last year and a half. Yeah, I didn't see The Ringworm as a big, a big, big factor myself. It's just an interesting thing that kind of connects. It's, it's Again, it's about the connections, isn't it? It's a fungal infection we're dealing with fungus here, uh, so they've 
you know they've already been infected by a you know a form of fungus which mm. may or may not make them easier to manipulate by the mycorrhiza or something i don't know but, mm. but also there's something pleasing about the name not that i'm saying ringworm is pleasing but you know the fact <laughs> ringworm you know it's it's circular it, it it feels like you know something's enclosing something you know they're being mm. held in there so it kind of they're brought into the ring, if you like, by the ringworm, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I think I think sometimes you can overthink, but yeah, it's, what, it's, us? it's just it's just a it's just a bit of you know fungal fungal fun. I love how he did this. Yeah, you can overthink things sometimes. It's just a bit of fungal fun. Yeah, Relax, just, man. Exactly. Relax. Exactly. Just eat some uh, mushrooms yeah. and yeah, and, you know. and have a ringworm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and get, off get you ringworm. Go. Take mushrooms yeah. and off you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have a trip. Have it's a just trip. a great time at the movies yeah. for everybody involved. Yeah. Uh, well done. Well, listen, hopefully next time we talk about a Ben Wheatley movie on the Empire Podcast, we can, we'll be asking similar questions about his thematic preoccupations <laughs> and attentions because that, of course, will be The, the Meg, Meg 2, two. Yes. a.k.a. Parnag Meg. <laughs> oh. The Stath punching nature. Fuck off, my yeah. Push. Take I that, fungus. I don't know what's more exciting, watching a, a, a Ben Wheatley, Jason Statham movie or watching a Ben Wheatley, Giant Shark movie. Well, it's the same movie, Dan, so we're I know, but as a concept, we're happy. As, as a yeah. concept, I don't know which part of the concept excites me more. And, oh. and what is The Meg except a film in which humanity goes too far and it's prodding the bottom of the ocean and unleashes primal, ancient, evil, biological weirdness, you know? It's all happening in the same universe. It's all been building this. We just haven't been looking at the signs. Well, there you go. Anyway, on that note, that is it from this spoiler special for In the Earth. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you once again for subscribing. It really does mean a lot that you guys subscribe and support us as much as you do. Uh, regular podcast is out every Friday. Keep in peel for more spoiler specials coming your way. But in the meantime, it is goodbye for my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Parnag Dan. Dan Jolin. Goodbye, Dan. Goodbye. I, I'm off to rediscover mushrooms. Uh, yes, I'm sure you are. You put me uh, in the mood. Yes. <laughs> Dan's going to be off his tits yep. and disco biscuits by the end of the day. That's right. Uh, if, it, if, if, if you don't see me again, don't come looking for me. The Empire Podcast does not condone illicit activities. Six months in the isocubes for Dan. Mm, and as William S. Sessions said, winners don't do drugs. That's right. Who are you going to listen to? The former deputy director of the FBI or Dan Jolin? Don't me. answer that. Listen to it me. Also- <laughs> Open your <laughs> minds, people. Open your minds. It is the also goodbye. Of the universe. Shut up, Dan. It is also goodbye, but not for long, because we're just about to do a spoiler special on a movie which also features a lot of barefoot action. Aren't we, Ben? We're, going, we're about to talk about Luca, which is, you know, there's no ripping or tearing or shredding or, no. or chopping in that, but... It's you know it's there's so there's so much bare feet in that movie. I thought it was a Quentin Tarantino Pixar film for, for, for a while. But anyway, listen, we're going to talk about that in a second. But it is goodbye from ominous whooshing Ben Travis. There you go, some ominous whooshing for you. I'm off to banish all mushrooms from my house. Don't bring a mushroom in here, especially you, Dan. Yeah, take that, take that, mushrooms. Uh, and it is goodbye from me, sack attack. I'm off to change the dressing on my foot, but very, very carefully. Actually, can someone take me to the hospital, please? (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. (laughs) 